Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you here from uh, Alice Springs and Bantua here in Arunda country in Central Australia from Karma Radio. We're broadcasting uh, right across the country on Vast Channel 911. We're also as well, of course, coming to you via our website at karma.com.au. Today is the 31st of October 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Coming up on Strong Voices today, uh, new data in the Northern Territory Government's Safe, Thriving and Connected Generational Change for Children and Families annual report reveals a, a decrease in the number of children in the Northern Territory in Northern Territory youth prisons. Uh, Priscilla Atkins, CEO of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, NAJA, will be uh, joining us a little bit later to share her thoughts on the report. Also, uh, Hugh Woodbury from the Centre for Appropriate Technology will be joining us this morning as well to explain the topic of carbon farming and explaining what courses they actually have on offer at the organisation. Chelsea Bond is also one half of the Wild Black Women daily radio show where they discuss what in the news made them wild uh, during that particular week. And today we're going to hear how Miss Bond became involved in the show. We're also, as well, of course, going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country with that segment coming up near the tail end of the program. Before all of that, we are going to go to a couple of tracks and then we'll be right back with our first interview. On top of our strong face, in the news, about Nguyen Mapa and Nguyen community, or your stationing, come radio and eight can FM. Yes, Karma Radio, great to have your company here on Strong Voices today. We're going to head into our very first story of the show. Uh, new data reveals a decrease in the number of children in the Northern Territory in Northern Territory uh, youth prisons. The recent data was highlighted in the Northern Territory Government's uh, Safe, Thriving and Connected Generational Change for Children and Families Annual Report. Priscilla Atkins, CEO of NAJA, the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, says the report reveals many positives and steps moving forward. Look, there's a lot of positives that have come out of that report. When they uh, had the Royal Commission, there was about 229 recommendations and the NT government has been working with the non-government sector to look at how you develop those programs and how to implement it. So even though people see this as a slow process, it's actually a better way to do it because we don't want to go ahead and do programs that won't work and then you've just wasted a whole heap of money and we're back to scratch one. So it's been um, a slow process, but it's been a good process. So, you know, the things that have come out of it is that, you know, they're setting up a specific use unit within the NT police. Um, they're also um, upgrading the Alice Springs Detention Centre. They're building a new detention centre in Darwin. You know, they've got um, 
They've now got back on track, so, you know, a lot more um, diversion programs going out there for youth. They're expanding the... um, supported bail accommodation. Um, so there's a lot of um, really good programs that are happening um, and, you know, it will take time for to see change on the ground, um, but that, you know, that needs to happen because if we just keep continuing to do things that they the way they're currently or previously being done, um, it's not, you know, all we're doing is just going around in a circle and not achieving anything. Just touching on, on that particular point, uh, I think a thing that you've sort of highlighted the following the release of this port is is the importance of Aboriginal solutions and having Aboriginal people a part of the actual process with these programs and, and, and policies. Why, why is it important to have Aboriginal people involved in this process? Look, it's essential to have Aboriginal people and organisations involved in the process. The reason being is a, a large percentage of the youth that are in detention centre are Aboriginal. A lot of the youth that are being arrested are Aboriginal. At the end of the day, you know, um, Aboriginal elders and Aboriginal people and communities have been working with their own mob for generations. So they know what does or doesn't work. And they're the ones who can actually bring the solutions to the government to actually make that change. What are the type of solutions, of Aboriginal-led solutions or, or Aboriginal people being involved in the solutions that you've seen that have, that have been making a difference? Look, at the moment, you know, we're looking at bringing um, Aboriginal elders and mentors into the detention centres and working intensively with them. So these are workshops that are being held and they're actually um, involving the elders from the different regions to come up with those solutions and, and say, well, this is what a cultural plan should look like. This is how an Aboriginal elder should be involved. This is how an Aboriginal mentor should be involved. And they're the ones who are actually putting that on the table and putting those recommendations forward. It's the same once they're back on track. You know, we don't want to keep locking kids up all the time. We want to actually put them into diversion programs that set them back on, on track. You know, put, um, looking at what those cluster of issues are that this youth has. Why have they come in contact with the criminal justice system? You know, really providing those wraparound services. And these are being delivered by Aboriginal um, organisations and Aboriginal people who have come up with the recommendations and the programs to put in place. Talking about youth detention, obviously great to see that we're, we're finally progressing in terms of replacing Dondale and having you know, a new facility that's going to be purposely built to house uh, youth. But in, in terms of Alice Springs, obviously, like you mentioned, we are seeing upgrades, which is good to see. But uh, you know, there was obviously talks about whether or not we would be getting a new facility in Alice Springs. Do you think we would eventually need to have a, a new facility built in Alice Springs? Look, our goal is really to reduce the numbers right down so you don't even have a large number of youth in detention. What you should have in detention are, are those youth that are, you know, um, putting safety at risk in the community. A majority of the kids in there shouldn't be actually be in there. They should be on home detention or community work orders or working back in the community and, and being supported. So, you know, the aim in Alice Springs is, yes, it would have been great to have a brand-new facility. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the location that had been selected um, didn't get get through um, so they've had to go back to um, you know refurbishing the current one so um, you know they've actually got stakeholders on those working groups providing recommendations to the government of what that design is going to look like but at the end of the day we really want to cut these numbers right back so really only the really um, you know whether we call them the bad youth um, are in there um, and the others that you know a majority shouldn't even be in there. 
And talking about reducing the amount of people, obviously a key thing that people have been talking about for a number of years is raising the age of criminal responsibility. Moving forward, is that a key thing that you think we need to implement? And are there other key things do you think we need to be changing or perhaps improving? Yeah, so that's one of the things that we are still pushing is raising the age of criminal responsibility. Um, And that's something that, you know, um, we really need to be providing evidence to that as well because, you know, across other countries and other states, you know, everyone has different um, age limits um, and we're here to show, well, you know, these are the numbers that we're talking about. And I know, like, the community itself, you know, would be saying, well, well, you know, these kids broke into my house, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at the numbers of it, you know, the kids under 12 that have been charged over the last 12 months, you know, you can count them on, on, on your hand. So we're not talking large numbers. What we're talking about, these kids that are under that age, well, they're actually kids. Um, yeah, they might have um, come in contact with the criminal justice system, but at the end of the day, they've still got a kid's brain and they need to be treated as kids and they need to be, you know, um, looked at and provided with therapeutic services so that they don't continue that behaviour. And, and do you think that that's a key thing moving forward in terms of, uh, you know, supportive services then? Most definitely. You know, when you look at it, um, a lot of the youth that do come in contact with the criminal justice system don't come in with that one issue. They come in with a cluster of issues, you know, that had a, you know, traumatic life growing up, etc. And that's not an excuse. I'm not saying that's an excuse, but that needs to be taken into account because if all we're going to do is just lock kids up, we're not going to break the cycle. So what we have to do is look at what um, the, the what support that individual youth needs as well as that family and provide that. That's how we break that cycle. We've got to start somewhere because if you don't, we're just on this never-ending road. That was uh, Priscilla Atkins, the CEO of NAJA, the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. We're going to head to a track now and then we'll be right back with our next uh, story here on Strong Voices. Hi, this is Pam from Karma and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You are listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Well, uh, the Centre for Appropriate Technology, a not-for-profit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-controlled business, aims to support people living in regional and remote Australia by creating sustainable and enterprising communities through development of appropriate uh, fit-for-purpose technology. Hugh Woodbury is the uh, Special Projects Trainer and Assessor at uh, CFAT, and he talks to Karma's Damien Williams about the carbon farming courses being offered to regional and remote communities. Hugh Woodbury, welcome to Calm Radio. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, for our listeners out there, can you tell us a bit about, uh, well, you're here to talk a bit about uh, carbon farming. For those that, uh, like me, uh, that may have a bit of uh, trouble understanding what it is, could you try to, um, yeah, explain it a bit? Yeah, no worries. I'll I'll do the best that I can. But um, So I work for Centre for Appropriate Technology, and uh, so we're a, a registered RTO. And at the moment, we've got carbon farming under our scope, so and we actually own the training. So we work alongside with uh, Aboriginal Carbon Foundation, mm-hmm. which is um, the CEO is based here. That's Rowan Foley. He was an ex-ranger down at uh, Uluru, and he's done a bit of work everywhere else uh, with the conservation side of things also. But what is carbon farming? So... And the reason why I'm coming out here too, it's it's re- re- relatively new, but um, also, you know, it's been around since 2009, I think. And mm. 
but now it's slowly starting to kick kick off. So there's about 78 um, projects throughout uh, the Savannah region country. So so there's a few different method methodologies, but um, we at uh, Centre for Appropriate Technology, we want to train in the Savannah burning projects, so Aboriginal carbon farming. So we've been doing it for, you know, thousands of years, our yeah. ancestors. So it's, it's, no, it's, it's nothing new to us, but, you know, the concept and what it's actually doing is fairly new to us, but we've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> so the reason behind it and carbon farming, so, you know, we've been doing it for a long time, so traditional burning practices, we want to, you know, encourage that back and bring it back because, you know, all around Australia we see the devastation of what fire can do. But also, you know, with carbon farming you can incorporate and make it into a project and get some really cool benefits out of it. So, you know, more employment, uh, the projects means more money so you can employ more people, vehicles, equipment. But, um, yeah, so carbon farming, so the cooler times, so, you know, when we burn during the winter months, so up around the top end, around here, so if we do those cooler cooler burns and get back to those traditional burnings, then less greenhouse gases are going to be released into the into the you know into the air into the atmosphere. So we want to bring back those traditional burnings. So with this course, this is really going to encourage people. And there's a lot of corporate um, uh, companies out there, like NAB at the moment, uh, working alongside of with uh, the Kaunyama Ranger Groups over in Queensland. And I went across there not too long ago to do a verification with them. So they've been doing it for the last four years. So they're there. And also, that's where the sort of the, the birthplace of ranger groups came from, so Kaunyama. Mm. So the carbon farming, it's pretty important. So we want to get those corporate um, uh, companies, you know, they, they've got responsibilities also to uh, help out and also fund, you know, some projects yeah. that are going around. So is that just like, you know, offsetting sort of uh, the, the emissions uh, that they produce? Yeah, definitely. So if we can encourage and, you know, create more projects throughout the Territory, Queensland, WA. So <coughs> Savannah Burning, really the metho- me- methodology only works above the 600 mil rainfall mark. So north of Elliot, mm. but we want to try and encourage it, you know, down here too, there are other methodologies that we're, we're trying to, you know, get our hands around. And and so, uh, along with the, the, the other side of carbon farming as well, it, I understand that there's sort of like another project where planting um, trees and those bush trees and, and all that kind of stuff as well helps to capture the carbon? Definitely. So you, we want to eventually, I think, hopefully once we get that methodology up up and running, we can, you know, implement that. That'll be more sort of focused on Victoria, New South Wales, maybe South Tasmania, mm. definitely in some parts around here. But then we've got the, um, the pastoralist side of things too. There's two uh, cattle stations in Queensland that cool. do the... Um, the grazier side of things, yeah. too. So there's a lot, you know, there's a, a lot of a different lot, yeah. styles of carbon farming. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and so the training that you offer, what, what kind of things can uh, people uh, get out of the training? So when you get out, uh, once you you participate or you do the course, so it's all government funded. So this is what I really want to stress, and we want really want to try and promote it and try and get it get get it out there, and that's that's why we're here today. So yeah, so. It's all government funded. Uh, getting getting the training, getting the message out there is is the tough tough bit at the yeah. moment. But people are are listening yeah. and wanting to take part. So if they want to take part, where can they go? 
Uh, you can get in contact with the Centre for Appropriate Technology or Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. And also you can jump on the uh, website, our CAT website, and also get a hold of myself. So, yeah, yeah my email address and stuff like that. I don't know if I can leave it with you guys and yeah. you guys put it on your social media or something. Yeah, of course. Uh, and just finally, brother, what, what um, you know, for, for those... W- wanting to uh, get involved in that kind of stuff as well uh, yeah just some words of encouragement yeah definitely if you really like if you really want to get into that background like I know your background used to be ranger or I, I was a ranger for eight to nine years um, it's encouraging it gets you back out on country you know it, it, it gets people away from town not just away from town but it it, it creates discussion uh, so who can do some who can do that um, carbon farming so we're basically focusing on um, ranger groups but whilst going out on ranger groups you know you've got to incorporate everybody that's there so mm. when you do the training you do the initial training and then you know a couple of weeks later or a month later or two months later it depends on how busy we are we'll, we'll come back to the community and we'll do a verification so we'll sit down we'll get groups of the traditional owners so the key key speakers and stuff like that and sit down and talk with them mm. so we get the ranger groups TOs anybody who wants to be involved and we love you know female p- participation too yeah and so what sort of uh, happens when you go out and verify these areas what what sort of uh, things do you have to tick off yeah so when we went across to Kaunyama so I, I participated in the verification over, over in uh, Queensland so Going across, so getting the TOs, so all all at that point we just wanted to get the core benefits and we wanted to, they wanted to get all the evidence together so they could take back to these uh, corporate companies and stuff and even government. So also with the carbon credits too, so when these projects are up and running, they capture carbon credits, so they're used by two uh, tools, which is the NAFI and SAVBAT, they're the websites, so they're the two main tools they use. Mm-hmm. So once they uh, get those and they... Uh, you know, find out how much or tonnage or whatever the carbon credits that have been released and they build that up so they can sell those to uh, um, government or companies, corporate uh, companies. But uh, government, they'll pay about $17 a tonne and people like, uh, or companies like NAB will pay 25 or 23 bucks. How, do, you, do you know how they calculate the, the actual um, tonnage and stuff like that? It's, it's all done by the satellite technology. Mm. So there's NAFI. NAFI's been around for a while, so anybody can jump on the website and check out, you know, fire scars, where the hot fires have been through. And then you've got SAVBAT. I'm still learning a little bit more about SAVBAT. But they calculate all the emissions that are released and stuff like that. So, Cool. And, you know, cool fires are the best because all the uh, uh, greenhouse gases and the carbon and all that that's locked in, you know, the debris and stuff that's laying under trees, cool fires are good. They come through. They don't burn and release all those. So yeah. hot fires, you know, when they come through and the fire scarring, you've seen it, can mm. be pretty... Uh, Pretty bad for the country, and it's just safer as well doing the cool ones. Exactly, yeah. yeah, especially for and you know it encourages all the traditional practices: hunting, coming back, getting people out there, regeneration of country as well. Exactly, brother, bringing those animals yeah. back that um you know you don't have to go too far out to yeah to get. Well, on that note, uh, Hugh Woodbury, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio. Cheers, brother. Thank you. 
That was Calmus Damien Williams speaking with uh, Hugh Woodbury there, the specials project, uh, special projects trainer and assessor at uh, CFAT, the Centre for Appropriate uh, Technology. We're going to head to a break now and then we'll be right back. Hi, my name's Alan Pedersen and you're listening to Calm Radio, Strong Voices on 18 FM. Associate Professor Chelsea Bond, a Principal Research Fellow at the University of Queensland's Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences, has spent 20 years critically examining the role of Aboriginal health workers, the narratives of indigeneity produced within public health, and advocating for strength-based community development approaches to Indigenous health promotion practice. She is also one half of the duo which presents Wild Black Women on 98.9 FM in Brisbane. Chelsea was recently in Mbantua and dropped into Calm Radio for a quick yarn. My day job is as an academic. I muck around in media as a bit of a side gig. And um, I had the good fortune um, years ago, um, the late Uncle Tiger, of course, he used to bring me on and let's talk every now and again. And the CEO of BEMA, um, Carver Watson, took over. They were looking for new let's talk hosts in their big shoes to fill. And so there was a rotation of different hosts for let's talk moving forward. And so I got to do a day a week of let's talk. And I wanted to talk to academics and just interesting people and have yarns. And it just turned out that one of the people I interviewed one week was my sister, Angelina. She's doing a PhD in comedy. And um, she's like, I don't know, I don't know what to talk about. And I just said, look, let's just talk about what made us wild this week. And we'll call it Wild Black Woman. And it was meant to be just one a one show. And the we finished the show, mob come down from upstairs and everyone's going, that was a really good show. Because we we're just laughing the whole way through. Um, and so we did another one and another one and just eventually it's, it's become a weekly thing. We have a segment on The Point now um, doing a social media wrap up. Um, and we get to do lots of OBs and gigs and stuff. And people want us to travel and come and do shows. So it's, yeah, just from us laughing about what's made us wild each week. I'm a Mananjali woman, South Sea Islander, belong to Yugambeh language group, born and raised in Brisbane or Mianjin as we call it. And home for me is um, out of western suburb of Anala in Brisbane. I got trained as an Aboriginal health worker. Back in the day there was a university degree qualification for health workers and um, at the University of Queensland. First in family to go to uni. I had the privilege of doing an Indigenous health degree with mostly other Indigenous people and senior mature age students and that rearing up in that educational context was so valuable for me because I just turned 17, I was a bub, and I got to learn about higher ed but in a critical black conscious kind of teaching learning space. And that shaped how I do my work as an academic now because I was raised intellectually by fierce black fellows who, when they encountered the texts that were written about us, um, called them for what they were, and they were fictions. And so much of academia, in terms of academic work about blackfellas, are fictional, works of fiction. They're not facts. So I came to the academy after working in community work and, and, and different roles to invest in and support production of knowledge about us by us. And so I enjoy doing that kind of work of going, well, this is actually who we are and we need uh, more black scholars contesting the record, but also rewriting the story about who we are as a people. When we did the show, it was all about, let's make a show for black women. And let's yarn about the stuff that makes us wild. Because if you think about when you watch TV and you see commentaries around Indigenous issues, very rarely are black women sitting in the seat contributing to those conversations. So we're like, okay, we're going to, we're like the black Roy in HG or a black media watch, you know, um, sort of look at, it's our, from our vantage point, we're going to talk about the news and we'll do it just for a black audience and a black female audience. But our audience is much bigger than that because people are sitting in on this yarn that we're having and laughing along and learning a lot. 
and it's via humour that we're able to get people to rethink how we think about the world and how we think about, in particular, how we think about black women and what black women are deserving of. And that's really exciting to know that we're doing some educative work for other people. The exciting part for me is when I encounter other black women around the place who say, we listen to that podcast and it gives me strength when I go to work on Monday morning or it helps me wind down at the end of the week and you just speak to what I feel. And so it's just so exciting to, you know, you know yourself in black media to do work for black people and for the enjoyment of black people. It's very new for us because much of the stuff about us is not for us. Um, so it's, I just love being able to play in the space of black media and, and do it in a fun way and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much fun. It's not work. Um, and I think it's probably more therapeutic for me than it is for our listeners because there's a lot of tough days of stuff we have to deal with. Yeah. And um, to get to the end of the week and just laugh. And Angelina, if you listen to the show, she snorts. So there's a lot of dead air of us just rolling around on a studio floor crying laughing. But we've also done some really serious shows. Like we've got the exclusive with Trevor Noah who um, once told that really terrible uh, racist, sexist joke, the um, US-based comedian got the exclusive interview with him. We did an exclusive coverage of the Jacinta Price speaking tour in Brisbane. And Akala in the UK, we got, we got to interview him. So there's people now that want to come and be on the show and yarn with us. And that's really exciting. So now there are guests, people saying, we want to come on the show. We want to come, you know, muck around. Our focus is getting black women on the show. We did a Mother's Day special and me and Ange brought our mums in. Mm. And uh, it, was, it was hilarious because Annie Colleen, Ange's mum, was rousing her through the show. It was like, you know, it it was so funny. It wasn't meant to be funny, but it was hilarious. And and people got to see a different side of us because we were there with our mums. And you got to behave a bit differently when you got mum on radio and stuff. And so it was just, we laughed and we cried and it was just a really intimate, moment that we shared with the broader audience and um, it was nice for me seeing Ange with her mum and yeah it was just fun you know um, so yeah I think bringing mums on the show that was special it was scary because um, we were like how far can we muck around with them or you know mm-hmm. without being cheeky yeah that was that was really fun with the mums black women do have strong messages and it's black women's it's the the boldness the wildness of black women that has done a lot of affected a lot of social change in this country it just doesn't get recognized um and so i just everyone knows a staunch black woman and everyone's scared of a staunch black woman but it's that fierceness and what i love about black women is that we live in a world where we have to be fierce at times because all contexts are racialized and gendered so when you're subordinate race and subordinate gender you're very much on the bottom bottom rung and so from from that vantage point the work that black women do is just so powerful and exciting and nourishing and I just love the fierceness of black women and I love the love of black women because that fierceness is driven by a love for our people a love for our land, a love for our community, um, a love for our children, even our men when they make us wild. Uh, there's still a love for them. And so I think it's about, for us, it's about embracing that, of going, you know what, the world says so many things about who we are. It demonises us for being intelligent and passionate and, and fierce. Well, we're claiming that. Um, we are wild black women and you're welcome. That was Associate Professor Chelsea Bond there. Uh, we're going to go to a track now and then we'll be right back with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. Hi guys, this is Dan Sutton and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, well, it's once again time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to welcome into the studio Karma's Damien Williams. Good morning, Damien. Good morning, Carl, and good morning to our listeners. 
Oh, apology. Sorry, Damien. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Carlin. Good morning to all our listeners. Well, uh, I understand you've got a story this morning in regards to uh, calls from Queensland elders in regards to the closure of, of a particular sacred site. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, after the closing of the climb at Uluru, uh, elders from uh, got Sunshine Coast elders have called for um, one of their national sacred sites to be closed as well in the Glass Mountains. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, senior elder of the Jinnabara people, Ken Murphy, who and they were granted native title um, in 2012, said he'd been fighting the government for decades to stop climbing the Mount Birrawa in the Glass House Mountains and um, says that it's a mother mountain. It is sacred. It's a sacred site, it, and it's where the birthplaces were. Um, that's the main thing, not for people to climb and take videos as well. So um, the in, in addition as well, there's uh, the Kabi, Kabi people have called for Mount Kuluman, uh, Coolum, Coolum to also be closed, which uh, sites on, which sits on, one hour north of Mount um, Birua as well. Um, so yeah, I just think it's um, you know with the closing of the climate at Uluru, uh, and this is what I was thinking as well. That it would it would spark um, other traditional owners around the country to uh, limit the visitation of people to sacred sites that are sacred to you know the people of those areas as well so uh, I think this was an inevitable and mm. um, you know especially for those people that have them that have native title and, and you know land rights and that kind of thing to be able to uh, you know do what they want with their land and and um, as as like as we know the the climate will rue um, the, the TO said that if the client, if the numbers go below twenty percent of people wanting to climb, um, the clo- the climb would be closed. And you know, over the past couple of years, ninety percent of visitors have said that they would rather respect the TO's um, decisions and and asking them not to climb. And you know, the animal mob said well, you you can climb it, but. You know, respect our wishes, and we ask you not to. So, um, mm. yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, shown how how lenient uh, our mob can be around the country when it comes to our sacred sites. Yeah, definitely, and it's you know, it, I think a lot of the concerns were coming beyond people just walking on it. it was people disrespecting it when they're up yeah. in the places, whether they're leaving rubbish or they're sort of you know defecating even yeah. up on these places um, like Uluru, which of course is is a long climb for a yeah. lot of people. It is a difficult journey. So and yeah, like the environmental impacts and that kind of thing as well, ecological impacts, and even um, yeah, the risk some of those places can pose to people. Um, you know, one misstep and you could end up rolling down the mountain so um, I think that safety was a big issue as well at Uluru and other places as well and a lot of these places are in remote areas so Mm. if you do fall it's going to take a long time for people to get to you. And this is of course outside of the fact that these places are culturally and, and yes. spiritually significant places to yeah. people that that you know it's it's not something that just sort of sits there and it's not something it's something that people are usually actively engaging in it's, mm. it's part of 
who they are and, and what their actual life is. Yeah, and a lot of these places as well as um, are, are places of creation of you know a lot of stories and stuff as well. So it's uh, yeah, it's sacred. Mm. Well, uh, interesting movement. I know we did hear that from, you know, people like Shane Howard as well, mm. as well as Chancey Pate mm. talking about that as well. So it's definitely going to be interesting moving forward whether, you know, we see these sites, uh, you know, hopefully progressing and, and being able to, you know, express their rights like, like the Anangu mob were as well. But uh, I guess time will tell on that. Damien? Yeah. Thanks for joining us for the news from the country. Thank you. That's going to conclude uh, Strong Voices for another day. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow where we're going to be doing a, a bit of a wrap from uh, some of the stories from throughout the week here on uh, Strong Voices. Strong Voices. Richard Ilkertan.